Hello, everyone. This is episode 117 of the crux of the story, where we focus on communications issues as they relate to business, society, and people. Uh, this is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. My co-host is Mike Fernandez, the fantastic chief of communications at Enbridge and a former BU professor. Hello, Mike. Uh, good to be with you and good to be with our guest. I really love the idea of the conversation we're going to have today. Um, you know, I've often been frustrated as a professional in our business, depending on good communications and all too often other professionals seem to get by with cute and clever. I know that, you know, in frustration uh, with the work he saw in the profession 40 years ago, Harold Burson claimed that if what we do does not purposely change or sustain a perception, behavior, or business result, it's not communications, it's just noise. So the fundamental issue is how do we connect with our intended exactly. audience? Exactly. And so it's really timely too, Mike. You know, uh, we're taping this a few days after Chiefs 49ers Super Bowl. And that that yeah. featured an ad about our topic today, which is attention. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, Mike. It was apparently produced by Martin Scorsese and uh, for Squarespace, the website platform. And it was about attention, yeah. about aliens invading the earth. And everyone is has their head down looking at their phones and the aliens can't get anyone's attention. And they keep flashing. And finally, they flash onto the phones. Hello down there. We need to talk to you. Right. And so uh, it's a it's a pretty timely topic, uh, the topic of attention. As you say, we dedicate our professional lives as communicators to the creation of content that we hope will deepen understanding or persuade audiences and improve society. But if no one's paying attention to the content we create, it's it's really worthless. And the bad news is that, according to our guest today, increasingly people's attention is being, quote unquote, fracked by increasingly powerful systems that seek to ensure our attention is never truly ours. Our guest is Professor D. Graham Burnett, who asserts in a recent New York Times essay with a couple of his colleagues that the problem of flighty or fragmented attention has reached truly catastrophic proportions. He is part of a growing movement that is calling for a revolution to win back our attention, starting in the classroom by teaching attention as a subject. This movement is referred to as attention activism, and that is our topic, as I say, for this episode. Brief introduction of Graham. He is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of History uh, and History of Science at Princeton University and the co-editor of Scenes of Attention, Essays on Mind, Time, and the Senses. He also is the co-founder and director of the Nonprofit Institute for Sustained Attention. His most recent book is Scenes of Attention, Essays on Mind, Time, and the Senses. Graham teaches a course at Princeton University, The Attention Economy and is involved in so many other efforts on attention restoration, I'm afraid to list all of them, lest I lose your attention. In November, Graham and two others published the essay I mentioned in the Times, 
uh, titled Powerful Forces Are Fracking Our Attention. We Can Fight Back. Since then, I've been wanting to talk to Graham about the attention crisis, and here he is today on The Crux of the Story. Graham, welcome. Oh, thanks very much. Hey, Gary, it's a pleasure to be here. Hello, Mike. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So, Graham, let's let's start here. How did you come to focus your research, writing, and teaching on the subject of attention? Well, let me start by just saying, you know, I think anybody who's paying even the littlest bit of attention is attuned to the reality of this, you know, if you want to call it a crisis, crisis, right? I don't think I needed any kind of special insight to see how serious this uh, issue is, and we're seeing people all different walks of life and from all different backgrounds and committed to all different practices and professions speaking to this question uh, with increasing force. The truth is my own entry into it probably most closely linked to the arts. So I've been involved for a while with a super interesting contemporary art magazine and a collective of folks who were interested in shifting patterns in artistic experience. And I trained in the history and philosophy of science. And on the philosophy side, I've always had a strong interest in aesthetics. So the experience of beauty and the way philosophers have talked about the experience of beauty. And so for me, the primal scene for thinking about attention was probably that paradigmatic museum situation where a person stands in front of a painting and looks. And it's a kind of looking that is super interesting. And what do we hope happens at that moment where you put yourself in front of a work? And uh, I was involved with a project the Sao Paulo Biennial a number of years ago, an art event uh, down in Brazil. And there were maybe 50 different artists and academics and writers gathered there, all of whom thought about attention, many from the perspective of aesthetics or performance art or hypnosis and trance and different forms of durational, immersive, meditative, attentional experience. And I think it was, it was really there that a lot of the work that you've seen, the Friends of Attention work and what, what has become the Struther School of Radical Attention uh, here in Brooklyn, um, a lot of that work kind of got catalyzed there in Sao Paulo in 2018. The title of the essay that you wrote that caught my attention, as I said, was Powerful Forces Are Fracking Our Attention, We Can Fight Back. So who or what, maybe this is an obvious question, Graham, who or what is fracking our attention? Yeah, let me even take a minute to kind of unfold that language of fracking, because fracking 
you know, is something you'll see the signs uh, out in the yards, folks complaining about fracking. But let's just remind ourselves what fracking is when we talk about fracking for oil and natural gas. And that'll help us kind of see how apt that metaphor is as we think about what has changed in our attentional lives. So when we talk about fracking for oil and gas, what we're talking about is a relatively recent technological process by which gas and oil that's down in the earth, but that's not sitting in one of those nice fat oil <laughs> zits that used to be out there on the earth, right? Where all you had to do is lightly squeeze, you know, stick a straw on it and gusher. There aren't very many of those left. What we have now is highly distributed oil and gas products in the crude state down in deep spongy rock spread way out. You dig a hole, nothing happens. So what you do to get that oil and gas out of the deep earth and get it to the surface so you can monetize it, you can get money value out of it, is you pump down into the earth huge volume, high pressure detergent, basically, to force that stuff to the surface, to dissolve it and force it up to the surface, where at the surface you separate out your uh, wastewater from the oil and the gas, and that's how you get the money value of that stuff out. And my colleagues and I would suggest to you that this is a perfect image for thinking about how the attention economy currently works, which is to say, currently attention is widely distributed. It's sort of low, mm -hmm. lowish value. You know, if, if I want to sell you a pair of high tops, I'm, I'm going to have to get lots and lots of eyeballs because you may not want high tops, a hundred thousand people, maybe one person wants high tops. I got to aggregate large volumes of a little bit of attention to have any hope of getting money value out of it. And the way these new and very powerful corporations get that money is they pump high volume, high pressure detergent directly into our eyeballs and faces in order to force to the surface a little bit of that spume of monetizable attention. And that just like the petroleum fracking has some really significant downsides. A lot of pollution back up on the surface, uh, geotectonic instabilities, excavation of basic structures of the deep earth. So does attention fracking have some really significant downsides, which I, I think we would suggest are almost, again, perfectly parallel poisoning of our collective environment and uh, destabilization of psychic and social deep structures. And we all see this. Again, I'm not talking about something that we don't, in a sense, already know, whether it's the, it's the grandparents at the, at the table, at the dining room table, like more in the phones than their kids, or the kids who, as we know, are, are in many respects not thriving under our current conditions. This, we would say, is, is a function of this attentional fracking. It's consequent upon that attentional fracking. Uh, Graham, you know, in the New York Times piece, you, you say that the, the fight for attention needs to start in the classroom. And I'm struck by, as I read that, struck by this sense that, well, we've kind of been saying that for 
you know, millennia. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the sense that, I mean, I still have a recording in my head from uh, Cheech and Chong growing up, you know, where you had Sister Mary Elephant saying, class, class, shut up. And just wondering, you know, how is it uh, that attention needs to start in the classroom and how so? Oh, wow. I had not... Uh thought about the Cheech and Chong in quite some time, so Mike, that's a <laughs> trip down memory lane right there. Um, yeah, so quite right. Teachers, folks at the front of the classroom have been complaining that the kids out there are not paying attention for a long time. Uh, we, we acknowledge that. But I think what ARC's central claim would be is that we're at a kind of a inflection point, a tipping point. All that complaining that teachers have done all that time was predicated on the notion that they deserved to have students in their classrooms who knew how to pay attention so that they could convey some content. But that's what no longer really makes sense. What we need to do is flip the script. It's no longer that educators can sit around and be like, we need some kids who can pay attention so we can educate them. It's that education now needs to be the training and formation of attentional capacities and attentional powers. And we could discuss why that change has happened, like why we need now to recenter our educational commitments around the formation of attentional capacities. Um, but, you know, big picture as a historian, things change, and this is what has changed for us. Changed for us, of course, at least in meaningful part, because we now have a vast, heavily capitalized, and technologically sophisticated series of interlocking commercial entities which have focused their powers on the commodification of attention, which is to say, again, yeah. we have a three to five trillion dollar per annum enterprise mm -hmm. that is trying to get you to look over here for an additional hundredth of a second because that eyeball time right over there is being aggregated and auctioned in a continuous mm -hmm. off-screen arbitrage that is a vast revenue generator for a series of the four of the five, I would argue, largest corporations by market capitalization on the globe at this time. And so we feel those effects and those effects have had yeah real consequences. Well, and in some ways, we've, we've had this kind of marketing for a long time. I mean, if we go back decades, right, we had Vance Packer uh, writing books and doing research about the power of marketing and what it's doing. And now it's somewhat magnified, right, with new tools, with the internet and so on, and the ability to, to frack, as you would say, to reach out, get, you know, that one out of a million 
individual who they're trying to attract, tools allow you to do that in a more sophisticated, more efficient way. And the the thing that, that strikes me here is that we've always had this challenge. The tools have changed. And then I look at the students that we've seen at Boston University and other universities, and they will tell us when we survey uh, Gen, Gen Zs that they really appreciate something that's authentic, and yet they give in to influencers through these new channels that are often paid by these marketers. How do you how do you rationalize that? I mean, how does that work for these individuals, and how does that play into this? Uh, you know, battle for attention. Mm, mm. Well, I feel like I want to go back to something, you know, you just pointed out, which is that in important ways, advertising and marketing are longstanding features of our collective culture. So uh, this is another moment in which if one wants to claim that there's something new that we have to confront, the onus is on the person making that claim to say, how is what we're confronting new? Okay, so I want to say two quick things about that. The first thing I want to say is that advertising itself is in some ways not actually all that old historically. It is itself already a relatively new phenomenon, which is to say if I'm like going to the county fair and saying, you know, hey, buy my chicken wings or, you know, that's not exactly advertising. Even if I put a sign out front and say, you know, chicken wings here, delicious, that's hawking, that's, that's selling, that's hustling. The moment in which we can see structurally that advertising has come into being is the moment in which you're actually selling access to the humans to whom someone wishes to convey a message. And as both of you as people in communication probably know, that phenomenon doesn't really get going until the early 19th century with the rise of the, of the penny press, the inexpensive newspaper, a newspaper that's being sold for less than it costs to make the newspaper. The oldest newspapers people charged quite a lot for, they were only sold to people who needed specialized information about the stock market and whatnot, and there were no ads in them. It was more like a subscription service. Uh, clever New York newspaper marketeer had a new idea, circa around about 1805 or 1810, and basically began charging almost nothing for his newspaper and providing what was in effect a list of classified ads and charging the people to post the classified ads. So what he was selling to them was the circulation he created by giving away the newspaper for less than it cost to make it. That is the aggregation of eyeballs, which gives us advertising as a kind of new structure in our media ecology. So still a couple hundred years old, like what's really changed then, Graham, you know, in the last, say, 20 years? And the answer there, I'm going to use a historical analogy again. You know, if we were talking about the period in the British Isles between, let's say, 1760 and 1860, and we were talking about textile production, making of cloth, 
you'd be able to say, look, people were making cloths in the 70s. They were making cloth in 1760. You know, people had looms. They were in their house making some cloth. They would sell it. They, some of them felt exploited. Some of them didn't. By 1860, you have these giant mills in Lancashire and other places. People still making cloth. They feel kind of exploited. The same stuff, different day, huh? Not really, right? The rise of steam power and the creation of power looms permitted the aggregation of labor under new conditions in factories and permitted production at a scale that was hitherto completely inconceivable, pushing out calico cloth by the mile. Very different than like some lady who's got a kid at her right and a kid at her left sort of working on a home loom. The change in the world of advertising and marketing over the last 25 years is comparable to that change between piecework textile production and the satanic mills of Lancashire. It is a transformation in scale that is a transformation in kind. And, and if I can hit it just one yes. more time, the humans who ended up at those power looms in Lancashire were the subject of a vast new experiment in just how completely and totally you could dehumanize people through a new form of technological exploitation. And the results of that were significant mm. resistance, ultimately, because uh, we see the rise of trade unionism and uh, labor politics as a result of the factory system and the transformations of labor that were affected by those new technologies. And I'll put to you, my colleagues and I would put to you, that we are on the cusp of a, another revolution at that scale. And when you talk about the friends of attention, what is it that we want to do when we talk about attention activism? We want to hold space for the emergence of a social movement of resistance to push back against these new forms of technological exploitation that are manifest in the human fracking, because this is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to get back some of what makes it good to be alive and what it makes it feel like we're flourishing. And that's what we're pushing for. Well, I, I want to return back to something that you mentioned as a response to my first question, which is the subject that it needs to be taught essentially is attention. And you helped create something called the Struthers School of Radical Attention in Brooklyn, and you teach a course at Princeton titled The Attention Economy. What do students learn at the Struthers School and in your course at Princeton? Great, yeah. Um, thank you so much. So Struthers School is a nonprofit, in-person project, and for folks who are in the New York area, uh, definitely check us out. It's a special spot. The Struthers School, created by the Friends of Attention, this coalition, focuses on one part of attention activism, what we call attention activism. So when we say attention activism, we divide that into three parts. We say attention activism is that movement of resistance to the exploitation of our attention, it's an effort to push back against the commodification of attention. And the three parts are one, education, which is consciousness raising, mm -hmm. right? study. And that's what we specialize in at the Struthers School. So more on that in a second. Second part is organizing, which means basically coalition building. 
helping diverse groups of people see that they're kind of part of this movement, part of this fight. So that's uh, organizing. And then the third part is what we call sanctuary, creating spaces which are sufficiently protected from fracking that people can reconnect with their attention uh, and feel its powers and connect with other people through their attention. Okay, so what do we do in the Struthers School? We do classes, a bunch of different classes, and all of those classes focus in different ways on the history and practice of the senses and the cognitive powers connecting to the world. So to give you some examples, we have a class that's just about to start on attention and poetry. So it's really a class about a kind of slow reading. So it's a class that centers on the attentional quality that one brings to a poem or the reading of a poem. We have a class being taught by a senior Zen student, which is on the traditions of meditation uh, and contemplation that characterize the different aspects of the Zen tradition. We have a class that's coming up on cinematography, filmmaking, but we read cinematography as a kind of choreography of attention. So what makes Martin Scorsese a genius is in part his sense of how to carry your eye through a scene to unfold a certain line of your attentional awareness in a situation. So we do all different things, but we return again and again to the theme and practice of attention, especially joint attention, where people pay attention to something together. That's interesting. Uh, clearly, Graham, you're a skilled storyteller, right? And, and that is a way to get and keep people's attention. And we've been emphasizing, believe it or not, in the corporate world, storytelling, which it sounds kind of, you know, when you work for a company that makes big hulking pieces of equipment, but there is a story behind them, just as you told the story of the evolution of the textile industry and then the revolution against the mechanized nature of that and the exploitative uh, nature of it. So uh, I, I would love for the people listening, particularly the students, to listen to the storytelling aspect of what you're talking about and learn from it. It's really important. It's a lovely point, and it's true. I'm a big believer in uh, narrative. In literary kind of theory, narrative often gets juxtaposed with description, right? So right. you have narrative, which is kind of in time unfoldings, and you have description, which tends to be more temporally static and doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end in quite the same way. And so I would just add that even as narrative can be a very powerful mechanism for convening and holding human attention, one can learn quite a lot too about attention from practicing a certain kind of focused, radical, close description. So to give you an example of one of the exercises we often do in the workshops that we run at the Struther School, we go back and get a wonderful uh, book by a French author in the 1970s, a guy named George Perec, who did a book called An Attempt to Exhaust a Place in Paris. And George Perec went and sat in the same cafe every day, day after day, and he simply wrote down everything that he kind of heard and saw 
everything that he considered the infraordinary, things even below the like threshold of the ordinary, the sound of the bus, a bird flying by, a woman passing, you know, holding the hand of a kid. We consider this a, a, an almost a kind of liturgy of radical attention. So we read a little bit of that text together, we make small groups, and then we send folks out into the neighborhood where they are for 20 minutes, half an hour with a pencil and paper, simply to sit, adopt a location, and to attend, to keep all their senses on the key vive, all their senses alive, and to jot down what happens. 20 minutes later, everybody reconvenes. And in an exercise that I find so beautiful and so poetic, we begin as a group simply to read around the circle, line by line, saying one line from your notes, one line from your notes, one line from your notes. And as we do that, it's almost like we weave those, those moments of individualized attention into a kind of a collective basket of, of, of the space where we were. You kind of feel the space, the place, the neighborhood, the block, the building sings because what I saw, you heard, what went by me went by you a moment later. And there's a delicious and hard to describe because it sounds so simple experience of what the great political philosopher Hannah Arendt called world making the actual collective activity of yes. being in a shared world. And we think of that as not just good for the soul, good for our relations with each other. Um, it's also kind of politically important, you know, uh, it's a way of breaking down silos because we have to be in a shared world if we're going to talk meaningfully about civic flourishing. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. And you've just added to my reading list, Graham, I've got a couple of things now to add to my night table politics and democracy. And I hate to bring us to that topic, but in 2024, we're going to have a couple heads of Major League Baseball team communications on in a couple of weeks. And I'm sure even that conversation will somehow lead into politics. So I do want to ask you about what you wrote with your co-authors in the Times, is that the fight for attention is at the core of the fight for democracy. And over the past 200 plus years, champions of democracy have asserted that individual and collective freedom requires literacy. However, with what you've described, information saturation, ubiquitous distractions, literacy as a priority must give way to intensity, the capacity for tension. What, what do you mean by that, Graham? You'll recognize that catchphrase that we need an informed citizenry. And we like to sort of mm, come up alongside that by saying, mm, there's an awful lot of information out there right now. It's not entirely clear that more information is going to solve the forms of fragmentation and political siloing that we confront. What we may need to think about is an attentive citizenry, meaning political community, friends who can like, look up from their phones together and see the world around them that they share and are practiced in that idea of attending together on stuff. So that sounds a little abstract, a little abstruse. And I feel like it's important to say that we feel that the work of attention activism is just getting going. 
And we don't have an especially strong specific political program. Nor are we against technology. We are not like just telling people to like get rid of their phones. What we're after is much bigger picture than that. And I, want, I really want to reach towards your listeners right now and say this because it comes from the heart. The scale of what needs to change over the next 25 years is enormous. But we've seen enormous changes before. Let me use another historical analogy. Like you gentlemen, I'm not going to call you out, Gary, Mike, but you're, you're mature individuals, and, and so am I. We probably remember back before the publication of James Fix's book, Running. Remember that book? It was a book called Running, which birthed an entire universe of ordinary people buying running shoes and starting to go jogging. I don't remember what year the book was, 74, 75, something like that. You and I will also then, Gary, remember that back in 1972, did ordinary people go to the gym? No. No, there were no gyms, right? There was no Nautilus, Planet Fitness, Equinox. Those things did not exist. The only people who went to gyms were people who were training to be welterweight champions and maybe some like high school athletes. And they were also the only people who went running. Why am I saying this? In the last 35 years, there's been an enormous transformation in how ordinary Americans think about fitness, health, well-being. They think about their diet, they wear their Fitbits, they go to the gym, they go running. This is a collective discourse. People's participation in health and wellness has become a crucial aspect of most folks' ordinary life, even if they're not doing it, they're thinking about it. I say this because we need a revolution at that scale over the next 25 or 30 years, where people are going to be thinking about attentional hygiene and attentional wellness pervasively. And there are going to be new successful corporations that are going to have arisen to serve this need, commercial organizations that are going to make money by, by selling people the promise of healthier attention. And schools will be built around it in different ways, and people's individual commitments will have transformed. So the little bits of work that we're starting to do here and there to try to affect this with some classes and get people focused on the study and think about its implications for mental health with our young people, to think about its implications for political siloing, even to think about its implications for our ability to stay focused together on large-scale challenges, geopolitical, uh, environmental. All this is just the tip mm -hmm. of the little iceberg as it's getting going, and it's going to take all hands on deck, all kinds of different folks, realizing that they themselves are already part of this movement, that they're worried about their attention, thinking about it, worried about their kids, trying to think about how attention could be different and make their lives richer. Uh, that's what we need. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. So you've used, you, you use words like radical, you've used words like attention activism, and I hear, I hear it, and yet I also know that on the other side, with the influx of various AI tools, 
over even just the last year or two. Just curious as to how would you define attention activism and how does it how does it ultimately evolve to deal with what's just coming up or is just around the corner? Mm. Yeah, a great question, a really hard question. And the Friends of Attention have been thinking a lot about artificial intelligence lately because we recognize the scale of that, uh, the importance of that novelty and the impact that it's going to have on all of us. I mean, I define attention activism, education, study, consciousness raising, right? So education, number one, organizing, coalition building, bringing people together, recognize they're part of the same problem set and the same pursuit of a solution. And then sanctuary, the creation of these uh, protected spaces where people can cultivate their attentional powers and see what attention can do for them. So attention activism is for, for me and for the f folks in the collective, uh, it's education, organizing, uh, and sanctuary. How are we going to confront these new challenges that lie ahead? Very difficult question. And I guess what I would say there is, <clears throat> I'll say two things. One, I deeply believe in like the human spirit. It sounds kind of cheesy. It sounds kind of old school, but I, I'm deeply committed to the very special character of human beings. And I believe that when we talk about attention, we're really talking about something that is like almost sacred in characterizing what human beings mm. are and what they can do. The great, again, French philosopher Simone Weil, you know, said so powerfully that all attention aspires to the condition of prayer and that pure attention is love. And I actually am on board with that in a basic sort of way. I mean, I don't go around all the time saying that because if I were in a history of science class and saying that, it would be kind of weird because we're talking about the history of eye tracking. So I can't be like, we're talking about the technical history of eye tracking. And then I'm like, yes, so it's about dot, 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 love. Now I wouldn't do that. But here with y'all and, you know, I can say in my heart of hearts, I really do believe that there's a kind of attention, the most radical kind of attention that is uh, love and that is a kind of secular prayer, if you like. And I basically believe we're not going to lose that. I believe that if anything, the rise of newly powerful machines will like bounce us back onto the experiential power of inhabiting ourselves through what we can give our attention to the stuff around us, the people around us, the things we care about, our relationships. I believe that powerful as the machines get, and I, I'm already, like I've written a couple of books, as you mentioned, and uh, I mean, to be honest, I sit in my office surrounded by my books these days, and I'm like, another five, seven years, you could, you could get any of these books generated with a couple of keystrokes. So, you know, this kind of bookmaking enterprise is not long for the world. I feel that for real. But the machines, whatever they can do, there's little sense that they're having kind of experiences of what it's like to be the entity making that kind of stuff. Uh, it's unclear that'll ever happen. And that quality of our inhabited being, the quality of our experiential persons, I would say that's inextricable from 
our attention. Our attention is literally like the electricity that powers that experience of our being. And that's why we can't let, we can't let folks frack it out of us, suck it up and turn it into money, because uh, that is just not consistent with our continuing to be able to be human beings, inconsistent with our ongoing ability to love. Attention's going to win in the end, but it's going to need a little help from those of us noticing what's going on and starting to get on board. You know, Graham, I, I, uh, that is for an English literature major like me and a believer in the humanities, that's so reassuring. But what you say about books is quite startling. I, I wanted to a little bit about the friends of attention and, and pursue this line of questioning about the bounce back that you hope we see. And I was so struck by the fact that I went to the site and I found a passage from Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi, which I love. And it, it gets to this point of attention. And section or the segment that's on the website is in which Twain writes about the two ways of seeing the, the great Mississippi River. One from the perspective of the chronicle of, of the world himself, and another as an experienced boatman. So the language that results from that different sets of observations or paying attention in different ways is completely different for each perspective. What, what's, why post that and what's Twain telling us about attention? Yeah, thanks so much, Gary. It's a great question. So all this material is online. People can check it out. The Friends of Attention, it's just uh, friendsofattention.net. And we have a kind of monthly international Zoom sort of workshop or seminar. And what you found there was the text from one of those led by my uh, distinguished colleague, David Landis, who's a professor of communications and writing down at Duke. And he ran that session on the rhetorics of attention and used the the Mark Twain bit on the ways of reading the river, the ways of reading the river to heighten our attunement to the way that our attentional capacities pass through our formation, what we, what we know. So he was talking about how many different attentional modes are available to us depending on what we know and how we've like trained ourselves and what we're interested in. So he put us through an exercise, which was a lot of fun, of trying to imagine different scenarios and then name the different kinds of attention that those scenarios require so that we could sort of reconceptualize the vast array of different perspectives on the world in attentional terms. So we did that together for sort of 45 minutes. There's actually posted a chat thread of the dozens and dozens of sort of new forms of attention that we dreamed up in emulating Mark Twain's wonderful bit. And, And just for your listeners who might not have the text fresh in their head, what Twain describes is the way that his attention to the river was transformed by his training as a pilot. So what he learned to see as he was learning to be uh, a boatman uh, gave him a completely different topography as his eyes took in the river. And we love that idea that there are new 
topographies around us all the time to be revealed by our attentional modalities, training ourselves up. In a sense, you know, you think about multilingualism. I know how to speak a couple of languages. So like I, I have a mm-hmm. wider vocabulary. I have a wider sense of all the things that are seeable because the languages provide me with a range of new tools for picking up the world around me. Uh, we, would be, we would argue that there's a kind of multilingualism of attention that you can think of yourself as acquiring different attentional idioms and deploy those as you move through the world to, to richer effect. Well, that's a great classroom exercise that for for students thank you for i'm going to steal that in some way in my teaching the points that you make about attention and the fracking of attention that's being done what is the responsibility in your view of those who are doing the fracking in other words the folks who are building these algorithms the people who are making these devices if there's going to be a revolution over the next few decades where we bounce back from some of that technology, what part should those companies play in it? That's a great question. And it links to larger questions about how social change happens and the nature of, if you like, capitalism. I guess what I would say is this. I really, I tend not to think in terms of sort of bad actors. I'd like to be clear for your listeners that it's not as if I exactly want to paint a picture of a kind of dark paranoid conspiracy where there are folks in boardrooms kind of rubbing their hands together and snickering to themselves as they think about how to do damage to the to humanity or something again i'd use a kind of analogy humans going about their business getting spending buying selling individually trying to make their way and optimize their situation over hundreds of years, really significantly poisoned the planet. That's just real. I mean, you can like put a fishing line down in the middle of the Pacific and bring up a tile fish and you you can't really eat it because it's got like so much mercury in it that it's like imperiling to like a pregnant woman. So that's, and that wasn't any one particular, I mean, there were a few bad actors specifically doing this or that, but it's mostly just humanity going about its business. As it happens, we significantly poisoned the earth and we're doing a lot of work now to try to like, you know, walk some of that back. I would argue that the, that that external pollution is the precise homologue. It's, It's exactly mirrored in what has happened with respect to our kind of internal psychological uh, and sensory environments, human beings going about their business, trying to like pay the bills, feed the kids, create new opportunities, mm-hmm. have effectively made a world in which our internal environments are meaningfully being kind of poisoned uh, by the uh, dynamics of the attention economy. So we just have to try to do better by one, believing in humanity, believing in the people, and believing that ultimately the only forms of real change that happen are when we come together and see that something has to be different. So again, I want to emphasize, there's no tech fix for this. It's not like you could download a different app on your phone and suddenly you won't have a problem with the like uh, attention frackers. There's no pharmaceutical fix for this. It's not like you can just take a couple of pills and then everything's going to work either. And, and it's right. also not that individual people have to kind of do better. 
like we're often told, oh, you know, I feel bad. I used way more like my screen time than I should have. How did I go down that hole? I've been scrolling on TikTok for the last four and a half hours. I hate myself. That was my fault. It's not an individual thing either. What we need here is collective action to change things. And the answer to like what the people who are in tech, what are their responsibilities? Hey, I mean, as many of them as possible getting interested in organizations like the Center for Humane Technology, the work of Tristan Harris, reading some Tim Wu, uh, reading some James Williams. There are a lot of really interesting books out there that are pushing this, and there are folks who are trying to develop sort of codes of conduct and ethics that folks can sign off on in programming mm-hmm. and resisting you know, the cultivation of dark patterns in uh, various e- user interface um, and user experience structures. All that's good. And I'm in favor of all that, but that stuff's not going to fix anything. We need legislative action. We need litigation. We need uh, intellectual and social movements like the Struther School, and we need academics to be teaching classes. We need to we need to change hearts and minds uh, and get everybody seeing that this is something that we can only resolve, only address at scale together by pushing back against a form of life that is inconsistent with mm-hmm. human flourishing. That's what's going to make the change. Graham, just wondering, is there a is there a remedy or are there changes or principles that need to be in place for communicators, for marketers, as you look at the uh, tension deficit that you're trying to cure? I don't know how many of them are listening to your show, but there's a whole universe of very brilliant school leavers, as we say, you know, college grads who are out there in jobs where they know that they are interpolated into the dynamics of the attention economy in depressing ways. Like they're working for marketing firms that are in effect doing exactly, that are in this business of trying to get time on device to equal money by getting people to look at stuff that some part of them really doesn't want to be spending time looking at. I don't have advice for those humans exactly, except jump on the website, see what we do. It's the friends of attention, you know, start your own little community cell breakaway club of attention activists. Watch some of our videos where you see people saying like, I'm a welder and I'm an attention activist because there's a form of absorption in the work of welding where like when I'm moving the puddle around, I'm in the puddle and I'm not distracted by anything or another like, you know, guy who's a surfer is like when I'm surfing, that's, I'm an attention activist. Like nobody can reach me. I'm looking at the horizon line and I'm watching the waves come in. Everybody who has a way of being with the world that is focused and where they bring their full selves, we think of that person as already a kind of attention activist. It's, it's going to happen at that scale because I'm not going to tell the folks out there listening who work for a marketing firm, quit your job. And, uh, you know, uh, move into the, into the homelessness ecology and be unhoused in order to fight the power. Not realistic. We're going to have to push together over time to make an impact on this stuff. That's fantastic. This is such a fascinating and important topic. I see it in the classroom, Graham. I see it in my own life. And uh, I think it's really important. And so thank you for sharing some of your thoughts with us. Graham, where do we, how can listeners look for information about your work and attention activism? The Friends of Attention site is the best place to go, I assume. 
I would say the, the, the most user friendly place to go is the Struther School. So schoolofattention.net. Uh, please check it out and get involved. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Graham, thank you for being on the yeah. crux and thanks to our listeners for tuning in and paying attention to this important podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of the crux. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at the crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.